the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, it turns out mountains are not dragon spines or giant noses after all, but are actually the earth trying to move around just right so she can scratch her back. Hey, maybe that's the true end of human evolution. We are the back scratchers she made for herself, or maybe not. Let's we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talked to T.C. McCarthy about his exciting new science fiction novel, Tiger Burning. In Tiger Burning, a Burmese future soldier who has been made into what's called a dream warrior, a sort of super cyber operator, is called out of hiding to take on the challenge of a lifetime in the Kuiper Belt and maybe save Earth in the process. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. We have new fiction and non-fiction at the Bane.com website. We decided to go ahead and put up the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award a little early because we had this slot and because we like the story so much. This one is called Treason Properly by J.J. Cragen, and it is the grand prize winner of the 6th Annual Bane Fantasy Adventure Award. The award recognizes the best original adventure fantasy short story in the style of fantasy greats like Larry Correa, Mercedes Lackey, Elizabeth Moon, Andre Norton, J.R.R. Tolkien, and David Weber. Also up for July is a great nonfiction piece. This is As Big as Space Itself, Building Our Own Space Megastructures and Searching for Them as Galactic Signatures of Alien Civilizations by Les Johnson. Are space megastructures possible? Can humans eventually build them? And are we now detecting the first megastructures built by aliens? In this month's nonfiction essay, space scientist and solar cell expert Les Johnson contemplates these questions and more and offers speculation and answers. As big as space itself, building our own space megastructures and searching for them as galactic signatures of alien civilizations by Les Johnson and Treason Properly by J.J. Cragen are both available at Bain.com for your reading pleasure. Check them out. Well, welcome, T.C. McCarthy, to the podcast. Hello, T.C. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. Sure. And it's T.C., right? That's, the way, that's what you go by? Yeah, I go by my initials, absolutely. Cool, cool. Uh, well, T.C. McCarthy is an award-winning and critically acclaimed Southern author whose short fiction has appeared in Per Contra, the International Journal of the Arts, Literature and Ideas, in Story Quarterly, and in Nature. His debut science fiction trilogy, Germline, Exegene, and Chimera, Chimera, were released in 2011 and 2012 for critical acclaim. In addition to being an author, T.C. is a scientist, a Ph.D. scientist, it says here in your bio, a full-time fellow, <laughs> and a Howard Hughes biomedical research scholar who served as a weapon expert in the CIA during Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. He's never been fired on or fired a shot in anger, but is a recognized, but is a recognized expert in future warfare and has been invited multiple times by USS USOCOM, I guess you would say it, uh, to <laughs> yeah, speak on... 
Uh, well, you can correct me. Um, to speak on the topic of future, how do you say it? I just say SOCOM. SOCOM. Oh, you have SOCOM. I see. Okay. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about your background before we uh, – all right. Well, first of all, out now at Booksellers is Tiger Burning. This is a science fiction novel. It's in a real Heinlein vein. It's really good adventure science fiction with some really cool uh, mind-boggling uh, ideas as well thrown in. We get a war-weary protagonist who's, who's just trying to get by at the start of the novel. We'll, we'll talk about him in a moment, but can you tell us a little bit about your fascinating background, T.C.? Sure. Yeah, I um, I graduated from uh, graduate school. I went to University of Georgia down in Athens. Graduated from there in about '98 and went straight into the patent office because I thought I wanted to uh, be an attorney because that's where the money was. So I wound up there doing work on complex biotech and combinatorial chemistry, and I soon found that the law sucked. I just couldn't stand it. So I started um, started sending out applications to the CIA. And like before long, I got a strange phone call asking uh, to report to a particular location in the Washington, D.C. area and um, had a very strange interview. And next thing I know, I'm being wired up for a polygraph. And six months to a year later, I, I walked in for my first day um, as a analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. And it was probably, you know, looking back, it is, it's the best job I ever had. And if there's any regret I have in life, it's leaving that place. It was just a fantastic place to work. You're always doing cool stuff, always doing really important stuff. Obviously, I can't go into details into, into some of the things I was engaged with, but uh, I, I really miss working directly for the Central Intelligence Agency. And since then, I've kind of been floating around as a, um, as a contractor. Uh, you know, I went for the bucks. And, um, and uh, so I've been working kind of as a contractor ever since, and occasionally I'll get invited down to SOCOM to give a talk or something else related to kind of the, the future of warfare. In fact, my first book, uh, Germline, back in 2011, uh, predicted the fact that we were probably going to be heavily engaged in underground warfare in the near future. Well, it didn't predict it, but it basically used, used that prediction as a uh, kind of a stepping stone or a, uh, a, a kind of metaphor for the fact that uh, we'd be headed in that direction in the very near future. And just recently, I think in the last year or so, head of uh, Defense Intelligence Agency came out and announced that that is, in fact, in his opinion, the future of warfare. So I sent him a copy of my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by underground warfare? Well, I mean, in the sense that, you know, as, as, um, as technology advances, what we're seeing is a trend. In, in advances in artificial intelligence, uh, you know, pilotless, uh, pilotless weapons platforms. And, and by that, I mean anything from aerial to undersea to tractor wheeled, uh, wheeled um, vehicles and uh, kill platforms such that, you know, fighting above ground wars in the open is becoming a more and more dangerous kind of endeavor. And if you look back historically at our enemies, take, take North Korea, for example, they learned during the Korean War that they weren't going to survive long above ground when America had air superiority. And so they started a long time ago digging in and uh, creating networks of tunnels and underground kind of systems to, to wage war from. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a trend, I think, that's been recognized for quite some time. And um, I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to really play a significant role in future conflict. 
Yeah, and and the idea of um, of unmanned things fighting for us, um, but with a with a human element involved in controlling them, uh, is part of tiger burning. I mean, it's the main part. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, tell us. Maybe we should start talking about the book a little. So, uh, tell us about Mong. And tell us yeah. a bit about him and inter- introduce us to the milieu, maybe, as you do. He's Burmese. He's a dream warrior. What is that? Right. So Mong is kind of a, um, a cybernetic or a, um, an enhanced human warrior where in, in, in the universe of Tiger Burning, one of the main, main kind of antagonists is the, the Chinese government. They're the main enemies of uh, what I call the allied forces. And it's not just Western forces. It's a... It's kind of a loose alliance between Southeast Asian nations and the United States and, and Britain uh, against what, what is mainly a Chinese enemy because the, the Chinese have really gone deep into a rabbit hole in terms of mechanized platforms that inject a, an element of randomness by having almost like a, a bare bones or, or a remnant uh, of human tissue associated with their creations. Basically, you know, the human brain wired into a, mechan- a mechanical platform with just the bare amount of life support um, present to support that mechanical um, and robotic platform. Now, what Mong is, however, is something a little more different, a little more special, where the Chinese looked at uh, doing almost the reverse, taking what's called a semi-aware, a computer system that, that although it, it is artificial intelligence, isn't true artificial intelligence in the sense that it's not able to think for itself, but um, essentially is, is a supercomputing platform that can sit inside of a human, human skull, uh, assuming that you can take, take away at least a portion of the gray matter. So, so Mong is one of the first group of, of humans that was involved with those experiments where the Chinese removed part of his brain, slapped in some hardware, or what they call wetware, and created by the merging of, of human tissue and a semi-aware computer, a system called a super-aware, uh, essentially a very, very, very um, uh, kind of uh, super-powered uh, combat platform that sits inside a human body, and they do all of their fighting basically uh, lying down. They're, they're, they're essentially tied into couches, uh, hardwired into network systems, and they are essentially cyber-warfare platforms. They're not out there shooting up at, you know, our allied, uh, uh, allied people or equipment, they're essentially engaged in cyber warfare that itself can turn deadly. Yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of cyberpunk sort of writing, um, a lot of times the descriptions are, um, it, it's a little bit difficult because the, the, the main character is not, he is lying in somewhere or jacked in somewhere, but you uh, you really pull it off well in Tiger Burning. Um, it, he really, I guess, Mar really feels like he's there. He has a vision of what's going on. He's he's really aware of, in, in a way, human is aware of his surroundings when he's when he's doing his fighting, even though he's not physically present. Although he is physically present when he first fights, when we first see him fight. Yeah, yeah, he's engaged in a little of both, but you're right. When he when he when he kind of dives in to you know stream of electrons, he the, the 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 thought process in writing something like that is very difficult. And I got to be honest, people are going to hate me for this, 
I am not a fan of cyberpunk. I tried reading some of the early, um, oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank. What's his name? Uh, Neil. Um, Neil Stevenson. Oh, you know who I'm William talking Gibson, about? Neil Sp- William Gibson. Neil Stevenson. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I tried getting into that back in the 80s, and I just couldn't. I never liked it. So I, um, I, really, I really kind of had to sit down, do some research in terms of man-machine interface, uh, what is it going to look like in terms of, you know, the human mind, if we, if we really go in that direction, uh, or well, let, let me back up a second. Forget about if we really go in that direction. In the universe of Tiger Burning, the human mind is going to have to somehow make sense of all of these signals coming in at the point where, where the, the wet layer is merged with uh, the, the brain matter. And so it became a really imaginative process of what would somebody like Mong be experiencing when he starts diving into systems and and really interacting on um, on a software or not a software but in a um, in an environment that's wired as opposed to what he would see just walking around a space station or engaged in real life in quotes you know yeah well you put it off really nicely um, and it 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 reads uh, the action sequences really read um, excellently. Um, before we even meet Mong in the book, we meet a guy named Lev Sandakiev. Um, Sandakiev. Um, Lev doesn't know it, but he's about to save the entire Earth and the human race right at the beginning of the book, so we can talk about it a little bit. Um, when we meet him, he's leading this pack of – I'm trying to picture this pack train of headless donkeys, right? Yeah, yeah. What is what's yeah, so, going on? He's he's trying to make merchant with the, these aliens. What the heck is this about? Okay, so Boston Dynamics put out this um, one of the first robots that they came up with. Uh, well, I should I should say I don't know if that's one of the first ones that came up with, but Boston Dynamics came out with this concept of um, I think they called it a mule when they first when they first put it out there, and it's essentially a um, a four legged robotic kind of pack mule that can go with troops and carry, I think, 500 kgs of cargo. So that was a very real thing. And when I saw YouTube videos of that, it really freaked me out. I mean, it is a bizarre kind of thing if you go and look at YouTube at these videos where testers will sit there and kick it, try and knock it over. It, it, can, it can function on ice, on rough terrain, mountainsides, in all sorts of different environments. That was the inspiration for Lev. <laughs> How does it sound? I thought, I want to do a story uh, around that. And so it really, Tiger Burning started out as a short story where there's this guy, Lev Sandakchev, I can't even pronounce it, Sandakchev, a Ukrainian guy who these, these alien kind of warriors arrive on Earth and their religion is essentially combat and warfare. And so it is a, it's, a, it's an affront to them to have to be involved in something as mundane in, a, in something as mundane as logistics and supply. And so what they do is they conquer races, they enslave a certain percentage of those races to fill their ranks as merchants, supply, um, supply chain kind of guys, and that's Lev decides to volunteer for that service. And so he winds up on some alien world. You, you see him in his last battle. He served for years already. And you see him in his last battle um, basically supplying the front lines of a war that this alien race is engaged in. And little does he know that if he survives that battle, he'll be given a choice. And the choice is become a merchant proper and not have to, not have to service the front lines anymore, but basically have his own slaves, become wealthy, 
live a life of luxury or return to earth basically reject it all go back to earth and um and you know go back to his previous life and what he doesn't realize when he chooses to go back to earth because he misses earth and his family what he doesn't realize is that to this alien race that is a declaration of war and it's the highest honor anybody could bestow upon them and so it gives earth 100 years to prepare for a war with this alien race and that's where that's where the book opens up is the you know the earth beginning to come to grips with the fact that in 100 years uh things are going to get very very bad yeah well so so the sermon these aliens um what are their what are the rules and strictures that have affected humanity um Give us a hint of why they are like that, maybe, and and what is it that that they they really hate people joined with machines in a in a deep way where the machines mm-hmm. are really in charge, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That there but they're is, not like you're this. See, in, yeah. No, no, you're going to see more of this in book two. Book one is very much a uh, uh, book. Book one is a, is a full story. You know, it goes full circle, and 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 you're left satisfied. But there are elements of cliffhanger kind of stuff in there where you know not the, the whole story isn't given away in book one, and so you get kind of hints in book two of, of um, it, you know more of why they're the way they are. Uh, so without giving anything away, they, you're right. They hate any any race that merges with machine. In fact, the original the war that where the book opens up where Lev is supplying so many front lines is a war against a race that has embraced machinery. And um, essentially, the, the, the Soman religion is such that, you know, combat has to be pure. You can go into combat with weapons and high technology armor, etc. But to the Soman, once you start um, kind of adulterating the, the kind of biological aspect of whatever race you are with machinery, it's cheating. And there's nothing worse to the Soman than a cheat. It's essentially the, the, the gravest you could commit in the views of Soman and their priests. So um, when, they, when they see the Chinese, for example, doing what they're doing, um, they look very much at the Chinese forces as sub, uh, I don't want to use the phrase subhuman because the Soman aren't human, but, but essentially beneath contempt. Yeah, and the Chinese are, are basically the villains in Tiger Burning um, that, that Mong has to deal with. At, at least, um, well, he has to deal with some Soman issues, <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially yeah. one near the beginning. So how does how does Mong end up with what seems like a one-way ticket to the Kuiper asteroid Karen? What happens that leads us there to to the really the opening of the story of the of the action of the story? Right, as as um, as brilliant and as capable as Mong is, he is the first generation. And so he has what he thinks originally as a design flaw, where when he activates his, his wetware, his semi-aware system, uh, it, it basically he gets signal leakage. And it's a very distinctive signal. And if there are any kind of special sensors within a certain amount of range, that will be picked up and detected. And so the Chinese, um, not the Chinese, the Americans, he knows, are, are looking for those signals. And he has been able to escape kind of the, uh, the war that had been going on between China and the Allies. He had been able to escape it undetected 
and kind of sneak into America as a normal kind of refugee from the war. And what he doesn't realize the whole time, he thinks that the American forces slaughtered all of his his, um, fellow dream warriors, including his wife, uh, during the war. And what he doesn't realize is that it's not the Americans necessarily who slaughtered him and his family and his, his friends, but uh, far more kind of um, uh, something that came from the Chinese side, because the Chinese realized that Hmong was uh, Hmong had some capabilities that they uh, that that they were actually afraid of, and uh, and and the Chinese soon realized that that first generation of dream warriors uh, maybe maybe they uh, they had a little bit more freedom of movement than was than the Chinese were comfortable with at the time. Yeah. And let's say we're in, in we're Charleston at the beginning, um, and someone awakes somehow or, or appears and is getting and, and Mong has to take this thing on. Um and this how does this lead to his semi exile to uh to the Kyber belt? What's going on? Right. So his he, son he, is, is on Earth. Right, so he uh, he gets attacked by this soman. Basically, he, Mong and some of his fellow refugees, the only job they can get is essentially the, the job of a migrant worker almost, uh, uh, almost the, the kind of job you'd get cash under the table type thing. And so he uh, he finds some, some work to do one day, and uh, the soman has left Earth, right? They've, they've abandoned Earth, and the, the average person on the street has no idea why they came or why they left. Only that things, you know, one day everybody wakes up and the snowmen are gone. And so uh, Earth is engaged in reclaiming as much material as they can. And, you know, metals, anything is, is valuable in, in the, the university that I created. And so Mong and, his, and some of his fellow refugees are helping to dismantle um, this snowman kind of outpost near the spaceport in Charleston. And a warrior uh, kind of comes out of, of hibernation sleep that nobody had known was there. And during the engagement where this warrior starts attacking everybody, uh, Mong's systems are designed so that they automatically activate in the face of a threat. And so Mong can't turn them off. And as soon as his systems activate, uh, the Soman realizes that what Mong is, and because he's part machine, part human, the Soman bears down on him goes straight for him. Mong is able to overcome the Soman, but once the, once the battle's over, he realizes that he's had some serious signal leakage, and his only chance at that point, uh, if he wants to escape um, American intelligence officials, is to hightail it out of uh, or off of Earth and go deep, deep, deep into um, the farthest reaches of our solar system and hide out on a, what is essentially a prison asteroid um, in, the, uh, in the Kyber Belt. And so he goes to this guy named the old man who's really creepy when we first meet him. Um, yeah. <laughs> who makes, makes arrangements. Um, <laughs> tell us about yeah. what is going on with that. Right. So the old man, and you don't really, I can't even remember now if you, if you get his name at the end of the book. But the old man is an embodiment of some of the more um, interesting people. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, uh, a fusion of some of the more interesting people I've met along the way in my career, where um, he is somebody who 
is very much engaged with the underworld of Charleston. He's definitely associated with the criminal element. He's got his kind of fingers in everything that's illegal. And he's really, he really preys on and takes advantage of the Burmese immigrant community. And so Mong, as much as he hates this guy, uh, knows that really he's the only one that can save him and get him, a, get him somehow off planet um, into a place where he could hide. But at the same time, he knows that by doing this, uh, he's going to be basically a slave to this guy. So the old man is somebody who, you know, uh, uh, poor immigrants will sell their children to. Uh, will, will, he, he will take advantage of any uh, hardship case, take advantage of any person um, that gives him an opportunity to uh, in order to basically make a quick buck. At least that's what you think at first. So when Mong first first kind of encounters this guy, he definitely is somebody you don't like, like creeps you out, uh, but does in the end, does give Mong a chance to escape. Yeah, he, I mean, he just, I, I pictured him as the sort of a, a Burmese uh, version of Marlon Brando second end with the, you know, Godfather type figure. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so Mong is on the way out in a spaceship and he meets, um, a uh she is the ocean uh nang 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 um what uh tell us a little bit about her and what she does for him um right so nang is somebody who um, he he doesn't really know how to fight um even though he's um right right. mong has this kind of problem where he's a bit schizophrenic in the sense that when his systems are turned off all he's got is a reduced kind of amount of gray matter to work with. And so his memories, his, his memories of combat, his memories of training, all of those things are, are kind of captured or stored in his wetware, you know, on silicon. And so as he's, as he's kind of wandering around trying not to activate his systems, he's, he's very kind of less than normal intelligence. And so when he's kind of on this spaceship heading off into space, well, first of all, you know, as experienced a warrior as he is, even if he had his systems activated, he's never really been out into space. So there's an element of uncertainty there or unfamiliarity. But at least he had some rudimentary training, but he can't even access that because he can't activate his systems. So Nong shows up on the same ship he's on. She's heading out into uh, the Kyber Belt as well because the only other option she would have had is uh, the old man would have would have stuck her in one of his bordellos to work off her debts. So rather than do that, she'd rather be a a, um, a guard on this really dangerous prison prison asteroid. Um, and so she <clears throat> runs into to Mong, and at first um, she doesn't like him. Right? <laughs> they just don't really get along. But Nong is somebody who is you know kind-hearted. Um, you know at her at her core she's kind. And so she sees this guy, Mong, who's struggling. And although, you know, it's kind of against her, her initial instinct, she takes him under her wing and tr- tr- does her best to try and train him to the point where he at least has a chance to survive, um, at, you know, when he arrives on, on the prison asteroid. Yeah. So um, 
that believe it or not, most all of that is really close to the start of the book, so we're not really giving any spoilers. But we would start now giving spoilers. We say everything that goes on on Karen and beyond. But um, so, but Mong is that we could talk about what Karen is supposed to be. He's sent to the dark side of this asteroid, which is kind of a joke because the whole place is so far away from the sun. Um, yeah, what is yeah, yeah. his alleged <laughs> task? What's his place say like? Again, I missed the last part. What is his alleged task, and what is this place like? Right. Okay. So there are two sides to Karen. You're right. One is the quote-unquote sunny side, <laughs> the side facing the sun, which is you know barely a, a pinpoint of light that far out. Um, and then uh, that that side is essentially your normal criminals, right? Not not necessarily. Look, anybody sent out there is is obviously done something pretty bad, but those are your normal criminals on that side. On the other side are essentially serial killers, uh, really really bad kind of um, people who who essentially have no chance of making it back to Earth. And what Mom doesn't realize or didn't realize uh, because it's kept secret is that the people on the dark side are are what are called. Um, Oh my God! I'm drawing a blank. What did I call him, Tony? Um, uh, oh. They're zombie-like. <laughs> they have regulators yeah. implanted in them. Uh, yeah, what do we call them? Terrorists. <laughs> oh my God! We should, we should come up with that. I'll look through the book here. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Well, go on. Talk about it. <laughs> So when Mom doesn't realize that um, before he before he's assigned there, well, let me back up. I forgot a couple of key points. First of all, the guards assigned to Sunnyside are the ones that are essentially of of nations that are allies with with the U.S. So that is the good posting. That's the easier posting. So on the sunny side, uh, you get the relations. Drifters, thank you. Sorry, uh, so on the sunny drifters. side, what's yeah. that? You call them drifters. Huh? Yeah. Drifters. Okay. So on the sunny side, you get um, you get the the nations that are allied with the U.S. You get Laotians, uh, you know, Vietnamese, those sorts of those sorts of folks. And on the and Americans. And on the dark side, uh, anybody who gets assigned to the dark side is essentially, you know, probably going to be from a nation that that it was not allied with the U.S. And in this case, it's almost 100% Burmese uh, refugees. And so Mong shows up on the dark side, and along the way, he starts to have feelings for Nong. And so um, it's kind of a bummer to him that they get split up. Nong is assigned to sunny side, and Mong is assigned to dark side. And he, he, he kind of discovers that the prisoners on the dark side are what they call drifters, and they are the worst of the worst criminals. They have essentially had um, their brains altered so that they're, they're more or less zombies, trained to go out and do hazardous jobs of disassembling and reclaiming metals that are that are positioned on the on the dark side. And that's the other aspect of this. There is more to the dark side than anybody knows. The dark side of Karen harbors a very, very deep secret with respect to the Selman and why the Selman came to Earth in the first place. Yeah. And Let's talk about um, weapons and technologies that you come up with, um, which are really cool. Um, what do what do humans have at this point? What might uh, other than I mean, we talked about dream wars. 
uh, why Mac the Soman possess as well. I mean, we we run across these rather powerful plasma weapons. Um, there's some nano that's really nasty, and uh, other technology. Right. What, what are these future weapons that that we encounter? Right. So so the the, the human weapon, um, you know, the the kind of the the world that we're in when you look at Tiger Burning is a it's it's definitely future, but it's not so far in the future that everybody's running around with pew pew laser rifles and stuff, right? This is stuff that that really has its footing in in science that is conceivable today, and in some cases has actually you know weapons along these lines have actually um, entered into testing phase. So humans, when you look at infantry weapons, we're we're talking about. Uh, futuristic automatic grenade launchers. We're talking about essentially handheld rail guns, which I think uh, I refer to in the book as um, coil guns. And essentially, those are those are are guns that that function like a rail gun. They've got an electromagnetically charged barrel that, with every pull of the trigger, it creates a a, um, a magnetic field that accelerates flechette or needle-like projectiles to extremely high velocities along the barrel length to the point where these things are really cruising once they leave the barrel and have very good armor penetration capabilities. And the goal there is to penetrate armor, but in space, the goal is to essentially shred, shred your enemy combatant's uh, environment suit so that decompression can take care of the rest. So those are the main kind of weapons that humanity is using at this point. And, of course, you've got... Um, You've got, in the beginning, you run into some crew-served, or not crew-served, but vehicle-mounted weapons um, very much along the lines of the coil gun, uh, um, the coil gun construct, but, you know, larger caliber, uh, explosive shells, those sorts of things. <clears throat> so not too advanced, but still advanced enough where we're definitely in the future. When, when, you, when you open those pages, you're, you're, not, you're not fighting uh, today's wars. Now, the Soman... Um, they have some very interesting technology, and one of the things that when Lev Sendakchev uh, decided to return to Earth, one of the Soman kind of um, mandates, according to their faith, is that for races that decide to fight, they, the, they, the Soman, have to fight fair. And so they gave Lev and humanity all the history, all the technological bl- blueprints, Basically, they gave us a complete download of all of the Soman capabilities um, to, to basically spend the next hundred years learning. And so you don't get a sense in Tiger Burning what some of those are other than what Mong encounters, but you will definitely get a sense, a, a more detailed sense of them in book two. Um, but <clears throat> Mong, for example, picks up one of their plasma weapons. And even with his wetware activated, he can't really figure out how this, thing's wor- how this thing works. But I'll tell you how I envision it is essentially the Soman have, uh, have figured out a way to, to create what amounts to a tiny kind of pinprick in the fabric of our universe such that they, they, um, they open a tiny little doorway into another universe where... Um, where essentially they tap into the plasma of a star. And so those handheld plasma rifles don't require their own internal plasma source. What they require is enough energy to create this tiny little pinprick 
and um, and to somehow magnetically guide the plasma coming from this star and have materials such that um, the weapon itself won't melt in the user's hands. And essentially, the Sovin are firing star uh, plasma at their enemies. And so the, the whole thing works if you start looking at, at, um, at uh, the kind of technology we might have you know, centuries and centuries in the future where we, where we can tap into enough energy, energy to create that little pinprick kind of access into another universe. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, nearer to home, we have some, the really nasty Chinese um, society. What is their society now like in, in Tiger Burning? How far have they gone in giving up their... Um, we have the, the Chinese. What is their society now like in Tiger Burning? Um, it, it seems like it's right. become almost... Uh, it, the individual has become subsumed. Right, and that is... that is You know, I did that actually... In, I, did, I did that intentionally. Uh, the, the way that I portrayed the Chinese in Tiger Burning is an indictment of today's Chinese government. And I'll just be blunt about that. Uh, you know, when you look at today's Chinese government, you still have what amount to concentration camps. You have slave labor. Uh, you have persecution of different religious faiths. You have, um, you know, the Great Firewall. You have a social credit system. It is essentially uh, a, a kind of extension of what we see coming out of the Chinese government today, taken to a an extreme. So the, the Chinese government in, in Tiger Burning is very much a horrific kind of totalitarian system that has completely, completely abandoned any sense of individuality in favor of, you know, benefiting, for lack of a better phrase, the quote-unquote common good. I can't think of two words that are, that are more disgusting to me um, than, than the common good. I'm very much an individualist, uh, and, and what I see going on today in terms of specifically China, I, I, wanted, I wanted to capture that in a science fiction setting and give it both barrels. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, yeah, there's not much redeeming quality in this up there. They can be smart and, it's and not, tricky. It's not, meant to be, um, it's not meant to be an indictment of Chinese people. I love Chinese people. That is specifically a metaphor for the Chinese government, and I want to be clear on oh, that. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's happened is, is this, this totalitarian vision has sucked in the populace to the point where they don't have any choice anymore, right? It's right. Using technological means. So it's, it's not an indictment of, of the people as much as an indictment of this hor horrific system. Um, that we've already that we already see the begin you know the the our version of today um, right and and you have, to, like you have when, to look no further than than Tiananmen Square you don't have to look any further than Tiananmen Square to see what happens to any individual who stands up to the Chinese system yeah there's that tank thing so uh, yeah what is it like when Mong becomes uh, What's it, what's a, his mental state like when he becomes super aware? What's his mind state like? Um, what are his abilities oh, yeah. that he can yeah. call on? It's like it's like you know it's like going from being a complete moron to being king of the universe. 
So for Mong, you know, after he's been dormant for a long time, that first awakening is like a shot of heroin. It's, it's, it's all empowering. Uh, everything's going to be okay. And it's more than a shot of heroin. It's like, it's like a shot of heroin, uh, 10 lines of Coke, and uh, a bottle of Jack Daniels <laughs> all rolled into one. And it's just, it's, it's kind of like uh, finally he gets to be him, his whole self again. And finally, he can remember things. Finally, he can think. Finally, he can he can um, tap into all of that training that had kind of been uploaded into his system, zero G combat, uh, and other things. And it's it's really it's it's um, it's hard for him to go back and forth to immerse himself in in that awakening, and then to have to go back to being an idiot. It, it's a really difficult thing for him to have to cycle back and forth like that. Yeah. yeah. So he tries to avoid it, but we kind of like it when it happens because it's like he turns into the Hulk in a way, in a in, in a mental. That's cyber exactly way. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I I had not yeah. intentionally so, done that, but that's a great analogy. Yeah, it's the great fun of the book. So, what are you working on now? Are we going to see a sequel to Tiger Burning? Yes. Yeah, so, um, Tony. Um, Tony Weisskopf has, has uh, bought a second book in this series, and I have um, outlined, I have several books for the series. As long as people buy it, they, they're going to get as much tiger burning as they want. And I love books that have exploding spaceships, um, lots of action, and characters that you actually care about. So second book is going to continue along the lines of what we started with with Mong, but instead of Mong, it's going to be his um, his children. He has two children. Uh, at the end of Tiger Burning, we learn that Mong has two children. Well, we knew of one at the beginning, but but toward the end, we learn that you know he's going to have a second. And those two wind up not being so close to each other, and the conflict between them really forms the kind of crux of of the second book, kind of in this backdrop of. You know, now we've moved forward 20, 30 years, and we're that much closer to war with the Soman. How much progress has humanity made in getting ready for that coming conflict? So you've got a number of things going on there where you're going to still get some, some kind of creepy hints at what's going to face us when the Soman return. You're going to get some continued issues associated with the Chinese, and you're going to get this, this battle royale between brother and sister. Well, that's pretty cool. So it's it's a kind of a family saga, and, and you know, at the tale of a war that's building and and going on. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's be the, uh, the series, as I envision it, is going to be is going to be essentially, um, you know, one generation to the next in that particular family. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't uh, get to that that we might want to mention before we we wrap up? There is, I don't know if you'd call it an Easter egg. I don't know if you can put Easter eggs in books, but uh, there's, there is one shout out. Anybody who read The Forever War and loves The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, he's, he is kind of like my favorite all-time science fiction author. I had to put a, put a scene in there that is a homage to, to The Forever War. So, so take a look at Tiger Burning and make sure you, you, you keep an eye out for that scene. <laughs> That's great. Well, the book is Tiger Burning by T.C. McCarthy. It's at booksellers everywhere right now. 
TC, thanks so much for being with us and talking about Tiger Burning. Hey, thank you, Tony. I really enjoyed this. And uh, say hey to Tony Weisskopf and all the, all the Bain family for me. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Ashok continued studying the patrol until one of the warriors noticed the attention. Don't look directly at them. Are you trying to get caught? Castlers keep their eyes down when their betters are around. It was difficult, but Ashok did so. One of the basic principles of combat was to always be aware of your surroundings. It was hard to imagine going through life staring at his feet all day. But perhaps it was for the best, because if the castlers got in the habit of looking around, they might see something they wanted. Great. You've got his attention, Keita whispered. Only a few steps away, and Gruvidal was waiting for him, inside a crate. It would be so easy to take it up and teach those warriors that he could stare at whatever he damned well felt like. Well, that was only the bitterness talking. The law-abiding didn't deserve his wrath. Look busy. Help me move these boxes. Ashok turned from his sword and effortlessly hoisted up a crate full of ore. Act like that's hard, damn it. Malnourished castlers aren't supposed to have super strength. Keita hissed. They went to work. Hopefully the actual owner wouldn't come across them messing with his property. The observant soldier watched them for a bit until he was satisfied their guilty appearance was due to them being caught in a moment of sloth and not something more nefarious. The two of them kept moving boxes, pointlessly shrinking one pile and growing another until the patrol moved on out of sight. Couldn't you have used your magic to hide us from sight, like the first time we met? I'm no wizard. I just hired one to sneak me into the prison so I could see you. Keita wiped his brow and sat on the box he'd just moved. Oh. Unlike many of his former brothers, Ashok had never had the gift for sensing if someone possessed magic or not. You're even less capable than I suspected then. Deceit doesn't come naturally to you, does it, Ashok? He pulled up a crate next to the madman. I never saw the point. 
The barge they had arrived on had left as soon as its new cargo had been loaded. Ashok had expressed concern that the castles aboard might talk. After all, when he'd been enforcing the law, he'd never had a lack of informants willing to sell their loyalty for a handful of notes. But Keita had assured him they wouldn't speak. The keeper had far more faith in the strength of Castless's tongues than Ashok did. Despite Keita's assurances to the contrary, he couldn't help but notice that many of the Castless were looking their way, as if they'd been recognized. I think your crew might have talked. You should have let me silence them. There was no need, Keita said. They're all faithful believers. I've dealt with plenty of your faithful over the years. I've not been impressed. Oh, but you will be. Wait until we get to Akashan, and you see the great and glorious future which is being constructed there. We've never been organized before. Things are changing. Trust me, those pole men won't tell anyone about you now, because in their hearts they believe that someday they'll be able to tell their children and grandchildren about how they once helped the great Ashok. Yes, I can imagine. Ashok shook his head. Gather round, children, so I can tell you about how I helped a horrible criminal escape justice. Your existence gives them hope. Hope stirs them up to pointless rebellion so they can die futile deaths. Keita shrugged. They've lived futile lives. What is some death in exchange for freedom? It is mankind's natural inclination to desire freedom and the tyrant's natural inclination to control them. Your very existence gives hope to people who have had none. In you, they see someone born just like them, a non-person. But you took up the strongest magic in the world and ruled the highest levels of the capital. I took nothing. The sword picked me. And I didn't rule anything. I served. I had a place in the law, just like every man should. That place was gone now. Now he was nothing. Just like the castlers. That's not how they see it. If you could rise up and do so much, why not them too? Why should they have nothing, just because of the status of their birth? You have demonstrated that they can achieve greatness, that they can be whole men too. Together, you, me, and the prophet, we will restore all that has been forgotten. We've been waiting a long time for you. Ocean's keeper, will you listen to yourself? That's nonsense. I'm the unfortunate byproduct of a lie, nothing more. Nobody's been waiting for me. The Forgotten spoke through our prophet and said that a great general would rise, strong as Ramroan of old, to save our people from evil, build an army, and lead us to reclaim our birthright. He would be descended from the suns and wielding a sword of black steel. That's why I sought you out in prison. I had to see for myself. You traveled a long way for nothing. No! Keita shook his head vigorously. The voice of the forgotten told me how I would know when I'd found the right man. When the rest of the vision is fulfilled, I'll know for certain. And then I can take you to the prophet. 
The foolish priest just wanted someone with an ancestor blade to join their rebellion. Ashok was certain any bearer would have done. So what else must I do in order to satisfy this vision? I'd prefer to just get it over with. Well, keep in mind the voice can be a bit cryptic, because the visions only come when the prophet has fallen into a dream state. A trance, if you will. Where the gods can take hold and speak through what the prophet experiences. So sometimes the prophecies may sound strange, but they always work out somehow. On this particular revelation, Keita looked at his sandals, awkwardly trying to phrase it. Well, spit it out. The Keeper of Names sighed, obviously aware that Ashok wouldn't believe him. We will know for certain who the Forgotten's chosen general is when the Prophet and I witness him willingly sacrifice his life to protect the innocent while fighting a mighty battle against a demon in the body of a man atop a bridge made of crystal. Ashok laughed. Let me amend my earlier statement. No one sane has been waiting for me. Keita grew red in the face. Ratul was. That took him off guard. What do you know about Ratul? It seemed Keita regretted saying that name. I meant to tell you eventually. He was my teacher, the first who exposed me to the truth. It wasn't until later on that I learned what a great man he was. I know the protectors like to pretend Ratul never existed. How had Keita met him? Ratul was one of those who had a powerful gift for magic, but eventually it had driven him mad. He turned against all that was right and good, and actively fought against the law. Ratul had abandoned his obligation and fled, ranting about gods. The capital had simply been told that he'd gone missing and was assumed to be dead. It was a common enough fate for protectors, and it had spared them the public embarrassment of having one of their leaders turn fanatic. We don't like to speak about Lord Protector Ratul. I've been told that internally your order called him the traitor. I wonder if you've since claimed that title from him. Now the keeper was just being spiteful. Ashok took a deep breath and held it until the urge to backhand Keita in the face passed. Ratul was a coward and a liar. No, Ashok. I'd say it was exactly the opposite. He discovered the truth and had the courage to do something about it. Ratul was a wise man. When he learned that he'd been on the wrong side, he did what wise men do and tried to make things right. He sought out the records of our forefathers and helped keep the new prophet safe. He taught me about the forgotten and showed me what to do. If it wasn't for him, I would still have a place, Ashok roared. Several castlers looked in their direction. The few who seemed to suspect who he was looked away, fearfully, while the ignorant seemed distressed that one of their own would raise his voice in public. Don't speak to me as if Ratul is some kind of hero. He could have ended my fraud when he first learned of it. But his greed allowed the lie to continue so that I could destroy the Order's enemies for him. If he'd exposed you, you would have been killed. 
Better to die like that than live like this. Ashok gestured around the dock and its filthy denizens. Temper flaring, Ashok lowered his voice to a dangerous whisper. How dare Ratul think he's better than the law? Yes, I'm certain I've claimed his title. Through no fault of my own, I became a traitor, but Ratul betrayed us willingly. He abandoned the order in exchange for you delusional fools. He turned to the forgotten because of you. Ashok was so furious. That took a moment to sink in. Explain yourself. Your Lord Protector studied the old ways, not as a believer at first, but so as better to understand his enemies. They were nothing but myths to him, until the day he found out an ancestor blade had picked an untouchable child to be its bearer. Then Ratul realized the old prophecies were being fulfilled. It told him that great and terrible events were upon us. You are the reason he left your order. Your calling by Angruvadal is the reason he abandoned your precious law. Ashok's anger was growing hotter. No more of your lies. Ratul lost his mind and disappeared. He fell in with delusional fools babbling about false gods. Mindarin tried to reason with him, but he left, and we never saw him again. Apparently, he found some dumb enough to listen. Ratul was once the best of us. But now I hope he's living in some castless shack, shoveling shit to earn his fish. Let him preach his nonsense for the rest of his pathetic life. Keita gave him an incredulous look. I can't believe this. You really don't know? The protectors tracked Ratul down years ago. Impossible. Something like that would have been recorded and reported. Ratul died in Utara at the hands of one called Devidas. And Gruvidal felt his rage and was quick to respond. The sword called to him from the other side of the flimsy wooden box, eager to dispense justice. Silence! Ashok lurched to his feet and took a few steps away, just far enough that the sword wouldn't tempt him. Devadas had never told him any such thing. If he'd found their old master, he never would have hidden it from the order. I'm done listening to your lies. Don't speak of this further. Keita nodded slowly. Even the seemingly oblivious keeper seemed to understand that he'd gone too far this time. Yet he finished what he had to say. Believe what you want, but I was there. At that moment, it was either walk away or kill Keita, and he still had orders to follow, so Ashok walked away. He went down to the lake and stood by the shore, close enough that he could retrieve his sword, but not so close that it tempted him to spill blood. At times, it was as if the sword sensed his emotions and magnified them. Sometimes, he didn't just have to deal with his own wrath, but also that of fifty generations of its bearers as well. He could feel the weight of their gaze upon him. Why did you choose me? You foolish sword, why me? The castlers moved their boxes, sang their work songs, and caught their dinner with hooks and strings. Ashok watched them. 
and hated them for being one of them. They might be his people now, but that didn't mean he had to like them. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a coaxial connection to the netherworld where sleeping beasts of yore dwell, keeping their secrets and guarding the entrance to an even deeper nether netherworld where there are sentient chihuahuas who just might save us from ourselves. Plus, thanks praise and plaudits for T.C. McCarthy, author of science fiction adventure novel Tiger Burning. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 